Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This episode of the Artelligence Podcast is an hour-long discussion of the recent New York sales of contemporary, modern, and impressionist art with Judd Tully of Art and Auction Magazine and Scott Rayburn of the International New York Times. It's a wide-ranging discussion, but at the very end, Judd Tully breaks some very interesting news about the record-setting Mondrian paintings sold at Christie's. So, Judd, uh, Scott, why don't we start with just sort of overall impressions. It was a big week, really, though there was a major sale the week before. Um, Judd, can you just give us, you've been through probably more of these than any of us, uh, you know, was this was this the same, only more intense? Was this somehow different? Um, well, it's it was different in the sense of just the the scale, the numbers. Um, I don't really recall a week of you know just cramming so much, so many auctions in. Um, no, I would say this was sort of the. You know the the big uh, the big whopper or something of um, of auctions, um, just almost like a gridlock of auctions and the values and the amounts. As Scott pointed out in his um, New York Times piece about the first week ever of a you know billion dollars from one auction house, um, it's uh, kind of mind blowing. And yet, very much, you know, it, this has been sort of percolating. These very, very uh, highly marketed, highly financed, and let's underscore financed sales, um, which I think is another interesting development. These days. Well, let's let's talk about the guarantees uh, in a little bit because that's obviously one of the biggest subjects, and I almost feel like. Uh, we'll we'll take some time with it, Scott. You you sort of had an intense uh, week of uh, going everywhere, trying to see and do everything. What were your impressions? Uh, well, in terms of you know, as long as I've been covering the art market, people have said, well, when works of art at auction get to a certain level, price level, the air becomes thin. I think what's pretty remarkable about the the period we're living in is if you look at what happened with the Picasso, um, I counted five bidders at $120 million, um, which is really pretty different from what the situation was, say, you know, 20 years ago. And that, that, that was remarkable. We're aware of how much huge amounts of wealth is accumulating in the, in the, the, the bank accounts of the 0.1%. But this was really a, a very sort of telling indicator of the effects of globalization and and, in, and in income inequality. I, I, I thought it was extraordinary. I, I I think that is the big change. Not that big numbers, which they keep getting bigger every season, but that usually they're not sold to so many people. And I think the first time we really saw that was with the um, the Bacon uh, Freud portrait, where there were several bidders well above a uh, hundred million. And 
And now we're seeing five above, I counted four or five still in at 140 million. Looking at the Monets or the other Picassos, that there was also a large number of bidders for multiple works by the same artist yes. in, in the sense that, you know, there's not just one person looking to buy the, with the best Picasso available at that time. There seemed to be, you know, a dozen people out there looking for a Monet. Yeah, I, well, when I speak to advisors and so on, they do say that there is the, the, the market has got, particularly in terms of clients from emerging economies, new, wealthy people new to the market, they're buying these very, very established brands, Monet, Picasso, and so on, and, and they're all buying the same things. And that, of course, increases the prices for works by these artists when they, when they come on the market. There's a concentration of bidders. They all want them. Yeah, I think, it, I think in a way it also indicates in terms of that sort of breed of, of new buyers who have yet to accumulate enough of the, you know, list, uh, a list, so to speak, of, of the best works that there is a hunger for that. So when something like the Picasso, which of course some people might question um, Christie's grand effort and successful effort, they were pitching that painting as um, the most important Picasso still in private hands. Mm. Which, um, which makes a mockery of the dream, which was sold in the same Gans sale for much more money. Exactly. The same 1932 painting. This was a 1955 painting. Um, not to say it's not a great Picasso. Well, it's interesting. Think about it this way. We were told that uh, Cohen bought the dream for $150 million about two years ago. Um, and... Uh, if it's truly, as we all think, a, a greater painting, you know, in private hands, using this new $180 million benchmark, that would push the dream, one presumes, uh, over the $200 mark. When you look at all of these uh, works that we compare these things to, you know, obviously two things are being sold at separate times. The bidders aren't comparing or making a selection. They don't know when the next work is coming up. Uh, you know, there's there's a, a sometimes a way of looking at these sales and saying, well, that's not the best Picasso. Why is it valued so high? But the answer, of course, is that's the Picasso that's available right now, the best Picasso in the world, uh, uh, maybe worth a lot more but it may never be sold i mean the the demoiselle sits in moma and every time one of these big picasso sales happens you you just sort of imagine its nominal value going you know higher and higher if there's a billion dollar painting anywhere in the world that would surely be it well, yeah. well it, it, the picasso market really is skewed isn't it because um the demoiselle obviously would make a huge amount of money but if, if in terms of his output most most critics would agree that it's the analytical cubist paintings of you know, 1912, 1911, 1912 that were the most important works they ever produced. But they're brown and very intellectual. And so it would be interesting, it would be fascinating to see a great analytical cubist painting come up for sale and see what it actually made because they're not decorative and they're tough. And yet, in terms of art history, they are his greatest period without question. 
Well, that's, I mean, not to jump so far afield, but there was a Cy Twombly Bolsena uh, painting available in the same set of sales that um, fairly disappointed. Uh, and, you know, the connoisseurs will tell you the Bolsenas are as important, maybe more important than the chalkboard paintings. Uh, and yet this didn't sell to the same level, which I guess just reinforces the idea that the market isn't a good gauge of art history. It, it's a gauge of demand, which may, which may lead me back to one other co- comment, which is I thought we saw a lot broader and more intense Chinese bidding in the form of uh, Patty Wong at Sotheby's or Shin Li at, at Christie's in the sense that many more pictures than than we normally expect the Chinese to be pursuing, they were uh, uh, an important, if not you know, driving bidder in the process. Yeah, ab- absolutely. But then again, one has to be careful in that, not so much I would think with someone like Patty Wong at Sotheby's, but Zin Lee at Christie's, she does have clients other than uh, Asian clients, yes, really and true. and I think the you know the houses like to sort of in that smoke and mirrors way like to sometimes disguise who might in fact be on the other the other anonymous uh, bidder, but you know certainly um, Asia kicked in a tremendous percentage yeah. of both uh, bidding and buying across the board. Um, from, um, you know, both Impressionist, Modern, and Contemporary. The one thing I just wanted to um, bring up, um, sorry, um, it's funny, I'm just getting a call from Sotheby's, but I'm not going to take it. <laughs> uh, the uh, w- one thing that really struck me last week, and this, and again, touches on the, this whole issue of guarantees and third-party backing and... Um, um, uh, irrevocable bids, but um, when they refer to a painting now that comes to market uh, without any of those things, they call it naked. That's the you know whatever the uh, description of it. And there was a Christopher Wool, um, a large-scale Christopher Wool that came up at Christie's in the post-war sale. Uh, one of those text-based paintings um, with the word in broken text on three uh, rows, hypocrite. And um, it was estimated at um, 15 to 20 million. And it, it bought in at, you know, a chandelier bid 14. And uh, I was shocked that it didn't sell, that there was no bidding. And at last, I looked this up, but it had last come up uh, it was sold, it was being offered by the owner who acquired it at um, Sotheby's New York in November 1999, and uh, the price then was $277,500 against a pre-sale estimate of 100 to 150 Now, you could say, oh my gosh, you know, that's just one of these, you know, the bidders were, you know, not paying attention, but... At Sotheby's, a painting basically from the same series um, sold for um, twenty nine million. Uh, twenty nine point nine million. Yeah. So that's sort of like, what does that mean exactly? Is there really? Is there? Well, you know, I'd like to. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, drill into that. I mean, well, there's another example. Well, again, if we think about auction tradition, um, I love this word naked, by the way. I hadn't actually heard it before. Um, in the past, it's always been considered right. If, if uh, a seller has the, the guts to offer it to the market without any kind of guarantees and so on, this will actually encourage bidding. But I'm just wondering whether something really quite strange is happening because, of course, you had the Giacometti and the Christie sale on Monday night. Again, that was offered naked at, you can call it naked, at 100, around 120, wasn't it? It was literally naked too. Yeah, it was very naked. <laughs> uh, and that's just really sort of died. We don't precisely know what happened, but there was one, one telephone bid, but then that was, they got cold feet and revoked it. And then another telephone kicked in and People have been wondering where that telephone might have come from. But again, this was absolutely exposed, but didn't encourage bidding. And I'm, I'm just wondering whether perhaps the mindset might be changing, attitudes might be changing towards lots that aren't protected by financial um, guarantees. Well, I think that the, it's not so much the guarantee in in both of those cases, there's there's very interesting you know confluence of events. Um, the the Giacometti was being sold by a, um, a a seller with his own mind. Let's put it that way. Uh, a very wealthy real estate developer who was, uh, as he you know uh, supposedly said to Brett, more than happy to take it back and not worried about burning uh, the work. So he set a very high uh, estimate which discourages bidding. He seems to have gotten a bid and made a good sale. And um, I think, uh, Judge, you pointed out this, it was originally bought for a quarter of a million dollars in 1970. So it's an enormous return to him to be able to get that liquidity out for whatever you know needs he, he has. Uh, and also he would have been happy to still own uh, uh, the statue. So I think it may be more the the estimate in that case sure. that that uh, dampened the bidding. Uh, and and there's so a, high that it just sort of yes, there was no way to get people in and tantalized and and that frizzen of excitement that hey you might get a steal, mm. which gets people you know four or five bidders in and then those last two ter- determined ones going to the, the the moon as we've seen so many times before. I I I I, I wanted to go back to the what was so interesting about the wool case where we had two very similar works uh, uh, let's add to the fact that um, the the three by threes are considered more valuable than the two by twos so hypocrite which is a stack of three letters uh, nine letter wor- word and riot a stack of uh, four letters uh, the hypocrite didn't sell and riot set a, a record where it should have been the other way around. And I believe there was some behind the scenes picking and choosing where the, the auction house actually thought hypocrite would be do much uh, a better. And what, what's interesting is at least one advisor, when I asked that question, why didn't that sell just sort of shrugged and said, who's going to buy uh, something that says hypocrite? Well, uh, yeah, I, that's very interesting. I spoke to someone, and it's very with these word paintings. The actual word them words themselves are incredibly important. It's one of the few examples in in the art market where it's actually the word counts for the aesthetic appearance. And hypocrite is very confrontational. In the confronting the person who buys it, and that may well have been a, a reason for it not doing so well, perhaps. 
let's talk about the guarantees uh, because, uh, uh, you know, I think you both did the math on this and showed that um, uh, certainly at uh, uh, Christie's, the majority of both of their marquee sales were guaranteed. And we've now added this new term, uh, uh, naked. Uh, so do you think that the guarantees are, are you know, as many people say, say, sort of a distortion of the market or at least take the drama and excitement out of it? Or is it this sort of the sort of new world order and we're just going to see um, a sort of different form of auction uh, take place? Well, um, I, I would just jump in to say that um, the guarantee, this is nothing new. This has been around um, for many years. And um, it virtually, uh, it being the guarantee, virtually disappeared in um, 2009 after the big uh, September uh, worldwide market crash. And uh, the subsequent um, auctions that took place in November had many, both Christie's and uh, Sotheby's and I imagine Phillips as well on a smaller scale got completely hammered because they had instituted these guarantees and the market had been when they set them was you know very strong and then there was no interest. So they ate um, tens of millions of dollars. So that's where the so-called third-party outside interest guarantees came into play very cleverly and basically replaced the auction houses taking the big risk. Now, that's changed again because now the market is bubbling and auction houses want to get more of the upside. So it's, um, it's not a new game, but it has been. I think Scott had a really excellent quote from... Um, Howard Roshofsky, the very sophisticated collector in Dallas and a former, I believe, hedge fund manager. Do I have this right, Scott? I think I do. Yeah, anyway. yeah, um, yeah. But he was saying that, you know, I mean, he's not even referring to it as an art market anymore. It's kind of this, you know, financial deal-making enterprise. And you get the sense that and you can tell at the beginning, like moments before each auction now in the evening, whether it's UC Kilcannon or Oliver Barker, they're jabbering away at the saying, you know, lots X and X and X has a financial interest or now lot 22 and 23 has a financial, you know, they're making deals right up to the last moment. And you can't really, in terms of doing the math, you know, really take it all in and actually um, calculate how many guarantees there are. So do, do, yeah. do we have a sense when, you know, I think you both pointed out that uh, there was a lot of additional third-party guaranteeing going on just before all of the sales. Yeah, yeah. And normally when we see that, we think, oh, the uh, auction house is getting worried or the consigners are worried. Um, and they're, you know, looking for someone to to make a guarantee. I, I suppose the the alternative view is there's so many eager buyers that they're approaching them before the sale and say, and saying, instead of waiting till that night, can I get a you know a, a number here that's a floor that it'll be mine? So it's a, almost like an order bid, uh, but it's you know treated as a, a a guarantee. Do do either of you have a sense from the from well, you know your reporting? Well, my sense this is. Sort of instinctive, but but sort of backed up by conversations, is that 
the market was 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 so hot. I think what was happening in some cases, there were people who were thinking, well, I can just make some easy money this way. So they'll they'll phone up Sotheby's and say, I'll guarantee this for you. Um, and I, I, you know, I spoke to a number of people about the detail of this, and I was I was really quite shocked by the amounts of money you can make for just raising your hand once. Um, something like, you know, it's not unheard of to get as much as 60-70% of the upside and 60-70% of the buyer's premium for laying down one bid. It's astonishing. You make millions. Wow. And that, uh, given the pressure on on uh, Sotheby's especially, but one presumes both auction sure. houses, to make money, you would think in this kind of environment that'd be exactly the time they'd want to hold off and say, no, we'll take the risk. We'll, we need the reward here. No, absolutely. But then, of course, then you look at Sotheby's and the, the top lot of their, their contemporary sale, the Stefan Edlis uh, Lichtenstein, is, <laughs> appears to be a pure house guarantee uh, around 50 million. Now, interestingly, I'd, uh, I only discovered this quite recently, is that the you look at the estimate and you assume that the guarantee will be equivalent to near the, the low estimate. But actually, the, the guarantee is usually worked out with premium. So with something like the, the uh, Edlis um, Liechtenstein, the guarantee could well have been around 60 or 55, 60. And it sold for what was it, forty-one, something like, or forty-one. Yeah, point, forty-one. Like yeah, forty-one. Uh, so, you know, Sotheby's, if if there was no supporting uh, finance at all, they could have lost fifteen million dollars on that one. Uh, fifteen million dollars on that one painting. Yeah. That's also, I mean, I, I mean, and again, this was really off the cuff, but I had, I saw, uh, Edless was at Phillips at the end of the week in the evening sale, and he wound up buying an Urse Fisher uh, nude candle. Um, but I said, um, I asked him before the sale about, you know, the that estimate 50 million. And he said, oh, oh, that, you know, that wasn't, you know, that's not accurate. No, the painting did really well. And that, of course, could have been just his own you know, spin on it. But it's mm-hmm. in this, again, it's very murky, opaque world that we're trying to figure out what's going on in yeah. because yeah. of everything, symbols, you know, tiny, tiny symbols that indicates this or that or announcements um, before the sale. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, that that brings us back to Naked. I mean, it, it's very interesting that they're trying to have it both ways. I mean, I, I understand and I actually think it's it's a smart move the way that they, they assume risk to get some of the reward. Sure. So, you know, most people who own art aren't, you know, looking to raise cash. Uh, and if they are approached, they are only going to release something for sale knowing that there's very little risk for, for them. Uh, even a risk taker like the owner of the Giacometti, uh, you know, wasn't going to take too much risk because he set the uh, uh, estimate very high. Uh, and yet we're seeing uh, all of this sense of nobody really knows what's a, a, a decent offer. You often see in any sort of bidding situation that 
uh, the bidders hold off until it's a really apparent a work is in play mm-hmm. and has reached past the reserve, and then the bidding can come in furiously. I think we even saw that. Um, Barker m- remarked on it, I think, on the riot, right, that it was slow to begin, and then it really took off. So there's, it's almost like we've got... Uh, uh, like a bicycle race, you know, in a velodrome where everyone's sort of hanging on each other's wheels slowly waiting for the last moment to break out, that it's very hard to see um, where the real demand is and, uh, uh, you know, who's uh, uh, most interested in these works. Exactly, because the the, the auctions now really, and it's been commented by a number of people, that that they're really public, private sales now because so much of the material is pre-sold. And I think that's the other thing we should point out is that, that there had been an expectation this year that, that guarantee, with both the CEOs going of Sotheby's and Christie's, there had been an expectation that there might be some kind of retrenchment, uh, concern about profits and so on. But what was so extraordinary about this week was that, that Christie's had just unleashed a fire hose of finance at very, very wealthy owners of art to, 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 to mm. buy market share. It was, it was pretty incredible. I don't know what you felt, yeah, the other part that's kind of interesting in terms of how the market has changed is that um, rather than you know relying on what such and such artwork sold before and basing an estimate on it, it's really just what the seller wants. Yeah. So to you know to pry that Picasso out of the collection, mm. um, you know they had to put a gigantic number on it. And, and um, I mean, I love. I mean, it's, it has really nothing to do with you know current currency. But the fact that the collector Victor Gans, back in the day, you know, less than two years after Picasso painted that um, painting that made the record price, um, Gans acquired the entire series from Picasso's Paris dealer. Daniel Kahnweiler for, it was the equivalent of something just over $200,000 for 15 works. And then he couldn't deal with them, and 10 went to a dealer and he kept five. Gans kept five. Of which, yes, uh, the the two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars or whatever it was was too much, too expensive for Gans. I mean, what's so fascinating is he was willing to again assume the risk. He wanted the the few paintings so much, and Conweiler forced him to take the whole series, claiming that Picasso insisted they be sold together. Something that Gans found out years later from Picasso himself was not a stipulation of the sale, yeah. but that he was such a passionate collector, he would take the risk and and didn't sell them for any sort of a profit he it was literally the well, 10 state sale i mean mm-hmm. the the once he did i mean the other was really just to finance the um but not at a premium. You know, these days you could see if the same sort of deal happened today, you could see, you know, the Namads, the Mugrabis, Peter Brandt, you know, any of the big players, Stephen Cohen, doing exactly the same sort of deal, thinking, OK, I'll get the cherry pick the pictures I want and then I will finance my purchase uh, with selling these other ones off by buying the whole series at, uh, at one. I, I, just, I was just going to say this is um, raising actually a very interesting broader issue around the question of whether guarantees are inflating the market and um, I think just the inference of what you're saying here is that 
certainly for these very, very expensive things, they are, uh, the only way to get them out is to, to offer an enormous guarantee. But it's a bit like um, the London housing market. You know, you have these candy and candy apartments of 70, 50 million pounds, but actually it's raising the price of a two bedroom flat in Neasden. And uh, I'm just wondering whether these enormous guarantees right at the top are just pulling up the price of, of everything. Whenever we see one of these prices, we think, oh, you know, that's not a real price. It's, you know, it's, it's got all these underpinnings. But then we hear people repeat the number until the next set of buyers feel more confident because they know these prices have been uh, achieved in some way. And so, yes, there is a it, it depends on the artist, I think, but it, there is a, a an umbrella effect, a coattails effect for certain uh, uh, other works. Uh, Judd, I want to get back to another uh, uh, piece of this, but Judd, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say that it, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, in the next whatever season or whatever, um, if another one of these Picasso Women of Algiers series comes to market because there are they are floating around and one I know of is being held by you know, a major player in that um, world. And um, with that, just the, what seems to me, that just the tremendous risk of just, you know, pushing these numbers higher and higher and higher. And what in the world, you know, is, you know, Brett Gorvey going to pull out of his hat next? What mm -hmm. kind of artwork? Yeah. I mean, the, the expectations now on the part of sellers when they look at these numbers you know, it's like, how are you going to get something to, to, to market? And, this is um, a, and this obviously is the auction market yeah. has killed um, or deflated or, you know, put in the back, back seat this sense of private sales because they, you know, they have access to all this, uh, this worldwide global, well, it's the same thing, global wealth. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a really interesting point you're raising there, there Job, because, of course, the format, this was a complete one-off, wasn't it? Uh, that you, yeah. You're mixing modern and contemporary works, but then it's created a, an element of risk here but because they've created these incredible headline prices. But the headline prices actually were in, for impressions in modern art, not for contemporary art. Yeah. Now, are they going to abandon this format? You know, when, when I spoke to the specialists and looked at the works... They were on such a high um, because of the, the, the quality of works that have been brought in uh, through this one-off format of sale. Now, they say it was just a unique sale and they're going to abandon it. But what happens next? Because you have these benchmark prices created just by a one-off, rather quirky, unusual sale that, that, that crossed over genres. And yet the expectations of price that, those, that created there are going to... Uh, continue to the next contemporary sale where there aren't going to be these Picasso masterpieces, masterworks, are there? I don't think that that's a one-off sale. I think it's uh, it was always meant to be a pilot project. Uh, as as Judd and I talked the last go-round, the schedule really doesn't feel... The old schedule of a week of Impressionism Modern and then a week of Contemporary has, has felt sort of off for a little while. And now... Uh, with this, the way that we're really sorting works into A plus 
works and then other works it we we really creating sales you know the, the idea of this sale was um the way it was pitched is really different from what was trying to be accomplished which was to group these very very large ticket items somewhat together and and take some pressure off of the other sale. You know, we've all been expecting Christie's to shoot for a billion dollar evening sale. And instead what they did is sort of barbelled it out into these two uh, separate sales. And they also ran two larger day sales uh, in that same week. So Christie's, I think, was looking for a way to, to expand their capacity by bringing the whole uh, these two categories together and then separating them out in slightly different ways. The the problem it creates is not for Christie's. It, it's for Phillips especially because they're the you know, the house that is constantly getting stepped on. And for Sotheby's somewhat, because if they want to pull in, there's just not enough days in that week for them to get another evening sale in if they all want to stay on the same calendar with the same uh, uh, group. But I, I, I think, you know, the real issue is these very big ticket items and this system of uh, uh, auctioning with guarantees. I, I find interesting about this is we've seen over about two and a half years, Christie's really use guarantees in a very sophisticated and aggressive way to uh, uh, amp up those sales. So in the sense that it inflates prices, it inflates the overall sales volume. It may not do that on individual uh, uh, works. But it seems to be getting to the point of we're we're getting to diminishing returns. They're they're guaranteeing more and more works, but the rate at which the sale volume is going up is is not increasing. I, I so I think there's two questions: just how much can you guarantee uh, to get? you know, and still sell a lot of uh, work. And now that you're fighting against your own sales and guarantees, what what have you changed about your your seller's expectations uh, in this whole game? And, and then how much of a market like this needs to be all shoved into these big weeks rather than, uh, you know, spreading them further out around the calendar in some way? Well, part of this um, conundrum, as it were, um, falls into... Um, Sotheby's disadvantage in all of this because um, they're a publicly traded company and they have supposedly more uh, restraints in terms of, uh, you know, just the stockholders in terms of what they can do and what kind of deals they can make. And I don't know how the numbers will come out, but um, it would be interesting to actually somehow find out what the kind of profit level, uh, you know, took place this last round. Yeah. Yes. You know, and, and um, I don't think that, you know, anyone's going to come up with that hat trick. But It's not just that Sotheby's is public and Christie's is private. Many of the people either offering guarantees or selling works to them you know, like Stefan Edlis or the, um, you know, the Nam Ads, uh, uh, or even this, this, uh, as Scott identified him, this Saudi collector who sold the, um, uh, uh, the uh, Femme d'Alger. Uh, these are decision makers who, you know, have very large balance sheets of their own. 
as large as the auction houses, but they can make a decision themselves, uh, maybe consulting advisors, but it's their decision. No one person at any of the auction houses, even the CEO um, of Sotheby's or, or I suppose Mr. Pinot can, can because he's in a similar situation, but he's not the frontline decision maker there, can, can make the decision as quickly. So you almost have a, a, an odd poker game going on where these billionaires are trying to cut deals with the auction house representatives. Um, and they've got, if not an information advantage, at least a decision-making ad- advantage uh, where the auction house person has to go through layers to get approvals and, and, and so forth. And, and I don't half wonder whether that's not a significant uh, imbalance in this whole guarantee market. It, it, what you're describing there. Uh, it reminds me of the uh, you go to art fairs and you say to a dealer, "Well, um, you know, if you sold this work," and they say, "Well, yes, we're, we're in negotiation with the museum." And of course, the museums take an absolute eternity to to, to decide this, and are always at a disadvantage uh, from wealthy private individuals. But I th- it's interesting what you're suggesting is that the actual. Um, auction houses are a disadvantage because they have to go through, in a sense, the same sort of committee process that um, the museums do almost. But on the other hand, you've just, the auction, it's not as if you've got an apples and pears comparison here. You know, all the auction houses do do this, don't they? Uh, yes, but I, I wouldn't want to play backgammon against David Namad. He's a, a world champion uh, at that. I also really wouldn't want to be the guy who has to negotiate a guarantee against him. Yeah, yeah I, I just on a, on a very simple level, I, I just yeah, given the success in terms of numbers and publicity that that, that Christie's um, number of guarantees created. Um, and I, I can't really see anything that's going to, certainly from Christie's point of view, that's going to change this model. I just am fascinated to see how it makes it play out. With, yeah, with, I mean, there, there, there bigger are and bigger, such, prices getting bigger and bigger. Where, where does it end? I mean, I think the houses are basically trapped in this um, sort of model that they've created. And it, it, it would literally take um, you know, a huge, you know, one of these market correction, you know, devastating uh, global, you know, blowouts of the financial markets to change sure. anything again. But I think they, you know, they're, they're, they can't escape. I mean, Sotheby's, they have a new C, well, both houses have new CEOs, but um, Sotheby's, you know, they, they would just be, you know, they're already like trailing. I mean, trailing isn't even the word. I mean, they're, they're closer to Phillips now in terms yeah, of yeah. their uh, totals, in, at least in contemporary art, yeah. to uh, Christie's. And they, they can't afford to say, no, this is too risky, you know. And, mm-hmm. and maybe it'll just mean that they'll continue to play more and more off on the so-called third-party side where they don't really get much or any of the upside. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they're just basically, you know, running flat with no profit. 
Yeah, they're 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 like the stock exchange taking a a very small uh, fee for holding the sale uh, yeah. uh, rather than being a principal. You know, I, I, I think you're right, Judd. It, it was very interesting to watch in in 2008 um, what happened with guarantees. Uh, there was a period in early 2008 where Sotheby's especially basically said, "We're done. We are out of the." Um, uh, guarantee game. It's too risky. Something bad's going to happen. And then they had to get back in because there was this global oil boom and, um, you know, the, the spring sales were huge and there was a lot of money made. And just at, at, at the moment they got suckered back in, the world was setting up for this financial crisis that would, you know, cause them tens of millions of dollars in losses the, the next fall. So even when they consciously know, you know, it's like that famous um, Citibank CEO, quote, while the music's playing, you got to dance, even though they know they should be pulling back, the just the institutional pressures force them back in until there is some sort of external event, uh, you know, in, in, in the broader economy uh, or in this particular, you know, art market economy. Yes. And I, I think so, you know, I think John is making a very point, good point here about Sotheby's. I think Sotheby's will be under pressure to take more house guarantees, to gamble, just to make some Profits, yeah. some big hits on individual works, yeah. and um, you know it, it, it really didn't work with the Edlis Liechtenstein. To, you know they took a hit there, but I and, but that in a way puts more pressure on them to take more risks to have another go. It's it's really like a little bit like poker, isn't it? Well, you know they they got it right with the polka yeah. that they sold, but they seem to have got it wrong with the Richter, and and that may be a nice sort of transition into, you know, it's interesting that you know this Richter the Sotheby's sold had previously set a record price for Richter, and you get the feeling that sort of it's not that the Richter market is over, but that uh, you know the the excitement of that market is uh, over, and I think one of you or someone had a quote of uh, someone saying, well. You know, the thing about um, Richter is, you know, there's always going to be another one coming up next season. So there's not a lot of pressure uh, uh, to buy. Well, you think, too, about just, you know, the number of people uh, around globally that have the, you know, wall space to put up one of these gigantic paintings, not to mention paying the price for them, even though he's, you know, makes hundreds of these uh, large-scale abstracts and is still cranking them out, apparently. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's also a question of, you know, how many collectors, you know, need them yeah. and, you know, how are you going to get more to come in? And it's sort of this uh, endless game. Or um, there are a number of artists. I mean, it's so interesting to look at... Um, uh, this time round, you mentioned Polka before, but um, this is the first time with his record-making uh, painting, The Jungle, made $27 million at Sotheby's and the Richter abstract, which I don't think anyone was saying was exactly a masterpiece or made 28 and change. Uh, and those two artists have always been considered to be, you know, the two greatest post-war uh, German, you know, both coming out of uh, East Germany, um, in, out of, you know, the 60s. And, um, 
it's really interesting how that, you know, the polka uh, sort of what won the day has, has now, uh, and a very difficult artist because unlike Richter, every one of his works is, seems to be, you know, done by another artist. Yeah, so yes. Sorry, gentlemen. Slightly anomalous with that that polka because it was a very, very accessible and how often do you say yes. word decorative with a polka? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that's uh, look. He's he's a, a prized artist because he's difficult, but in market terms, he's difficult because he he rarely does anything that's as pretty as that one picture. Which so it's not a surprise to see that be again the record-setting price. I think what was a surprise was to see the um, Rothko, the the one that had been owned by both Pino and Bunny Mellon not really set the world on fire. In fact, I mean, the, of the three major Rothkos that uh, were for sale, only one, in many ways, the the sort of least obvious and exciting of the, the works really took off. And I, I don't know, is that, you know, uh, shopping, uh, everyone alighting on the one painting, or is it uh, uh, something else about the Rothko market that's going on there? But was it, in terms of the Rothkos, that the one that did make had, it was just much more painterly, had a lot more sort of poetry and mystery to it, where the other two were really quite sort of blocky, weren't they? What, what, what were your thoughts, thoughts Judd, on that? Well, I spoke to one um, dealer who was, I think he was the direct underbidder or just after the um, Rothko that sold in the Looking Forward to the Past evening sale. <coughs> at Christie's, uh, it was called Black Stripe, number 36 Black Stripe from 1958. And that made $40.4 at an estimate of 30 to 50. And he had said in his opinion, and he was kind of cursing himself for not being stronger about the bids, that he liked that, you know, the best of the other two Okay. Uh, Rothkos that were offered in the week, but again, it's it's again it's such a um, you would think, as Marion pointed out, just the provenance of you know melon would you know burnish that painting and make it go you know higher, but lo and behold, it was the one that um, uh, the last one, so to speak, the dark one, unusual. Uh, in terms of color and in terms of just uh, the scope of it that went crazy at uh, at Christie's. Uh, one second, sorry. Well, and also the, the, the ex-Melon pick was to some extent being flipped as well, wasn't it? Because it had been bought from Pinot uh, and was, what, I've come, was it five, seven years ago? It was being resold. Um, I couldn't find out the name of the seller. I perhaps you guys might know. Uh, yeah. That might have slightly put people off as well. Yes, I think uh, it was both the logic that uh, the Mellon Rothkos had done so well uh, that brought it to sale is probably also a little bit of the logic that worked against it. Uh, you know, here it was the next season and it was kind of trying to be a me too picture. Um, I can't remember. Someone might've suggested there were condition issues uh, with, with it. As well. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, there you know, there's always all sorts of factors with when one particular painting doesn't sell. And 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 by the way, it, it may not have sold extremely well, but it still cost a lot of money. Um, and and uh, you know, it was was I think the top lot uh, uh, of their sale. Yeah. But mm-hmm. but it was just of those three works, I would have thought, um, you know, the connoisseur's picture would have sold well, but not at such a high price. And I would have thought the you know, these other two uh, would have had, uh, what's the euphemism we use, global appeal. Uh, and that just uh, uh, seems to be not the case, which I think, uh, again, you know, the, the art market doesn't need defending, but it's always um, interesting when we see people chase after more difficult works. Uh, it shows that there's there's a lot more going on in, in this very large art market than just uh, people buying trophies. And, and just going back, I mean, to this, it's in, you know, this trio of, 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 of Rothko's, um, I was, you know, I've heard Brett Gorby, the head of uh, Christie's post-war, um, he was going on about it and he can go on about, you know, just about, you know, any offering, but, you know, saying, you know, they set up this kind of Rothko-esque chapel at Christie's to show the painting and, you know, he was spending time with it every morning in a kind of meditative state. And I think someone like um, a Brett Gorvey in this kind of world can, you know, really sort of seduce um, potential buyers to, you know, become enamored of, of an object and the way they treat it. And they, you know, spend a tremendous amount. I mean, Gorvey introduced at the post-sale press conference, the lighting designer who lit the Rothko, which, you know, would, you know, I mean, it's not like the, uh, you know, the Emmy Awards or something like that, or, you know, like. They don't introduce the lighting designer at the Emmy Awards. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, but I'm just saying, it, it, it just was like extraordinary, but they put so much uh, care into presenting these works and lots and lots of strategy and um, thinking about it. It's not just, you know, you know, like in the old days when they had, you know, carpeting on the walls and they just, you know, nailed the, the nail in and put the painting up. It's a very different um, theatrical presentation. Yes, and, and and I believe Brett wrote somewhere that he uh, he, he was close to the buyer. Uh, who was a you know a very good client of his, and so I guess you know there there is something to be said for uh, good old fashioned salesmanship that uh, you know in, in the end the the dialogue between the various parties can uh, really encourage people to uh, focus on a work and and achieve those kinds of prices. It's not all the the you know what do we call the vulgar uh, you know global trophy hunters, but you know actually people engaging in a in a conversation about. Uh, art that results in a uh, a lot of demand. It's I, the the amount of hyperbole that was 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 kicking around, particularly at Christie's, was was really remarkable. This this calling galleries chapels, um, <laughs> and so, uh, I, I, Mary and I. That's what you're buying. That's the when I'm sorry, but that is what you're. Uh, that's what they're selling, uh, and 
you know, a good salesman, we, you know, Tobias uh, uh, Meyer at uh, Sotheby's, uh, you know, always had some great uh, um, gushing lines yeah. about his pe- paintings. Uh, you know, uh, Brett uh, 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 combines a certain style that, uh, you know, of lavishness w- with bookishness that um, seems to to work well for him because he's you know driving the these sales. I mean, I think it's a, always you know you don't you shouldn't expect a salesman to tell you anything more than their line, their patter on all all, all of this, and it's their job to put things in the be- the the best possible light. But, you, you know, know it, go- uh, it goes to show though that, uh, and I think you know strikingly um, that it's not. It's no longer a question of just bringing the property to market. It's selling it and selling it effectively. And I think this is where Christie's has really excelled yes. compared to Sotheby's. And, you know, way, way back in the, you know, you know, somewhere miles away is Phillips, which has always had trouble uh, selling works, it seems. Um, so it's... I think that's another, you know, dimension of this, uh, or I don't know, I was almost going to say dementia, but that's changed <laughs> in the, you know, in this world is, is that it's, 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 uh, well, but let's go back to salesmanship for a second, because, you know, uh, about five years ago, Phillips sort of gave itself over to Philippe Segalo, who is um, Brett's uh, immediate predecessor. Uh, and, you know, Segalo put on a, a monster of a sale showing uh, exactly what you're describing, that, that it's the salesmanship of a, a, a figure who has the trust of enough buyers and sellers and the ability to push the envelope in the hyperbole without losing all credibility uh, and bring it all together into sort of one evening of a do or die. Uh, that is, I guess, why this is a fascinating world. It's a, it's a high stakes game and there are a few people who clearly are very good at it and finding them and, and putting them in place is sort of the, one of the secrets of how you uh, succeed. Well, I, I, I just wonder also how much the whole uh, format or the formula of the bespoke curated sale uh, is, is going to be the way forward for, for the, the major auction houses now because, you know, we saw them the Monday night sale. There was not only Loic sale, but obviously a lot of other people involved. What an incredible success it was. And, of course, we've seen, the, in a sense, that the, the pressure that was put on Christie's to, you know, when are you going to hold your billion-dollar contemporary sale? But it's such an elegant way of getting around this issue, isn't it? You just create an entirely new format of sale. Well, you know, maybe what they're doing, consciously or not, is uh, substituting for the fact that there are fewer Ganses in the world or or fewer of those collections that come up whole and seem like events. You know, when, when we do this sort of legendary sales you there there are only a handful of them there's the skull sale there's the ganses there's a you know the melon they did a pretty good job of turning into that kind of uh, of event there're not a ton of these um 
collectors whose provenance adds real substantial value. So it's almost as if they're trying to create their own provenance of a of an exciting important sale that you that become attaches itself to the works that are sold and so they're more valuable for having been purchased in looking forward to the past you know these sort of name sales almost like you know the tv news names natural disasters now they're they're taking these sales and turning them into sort of singular events hmm. I, and i just wanted to like also just mention because i, I didn't I just heard this, but um, if you look at the you know impressionist modern market, which as Scott was pointing out before, was you know really the the top prices of the week, um, and at Christie's, you know, pretty their late afternoon um, impressionist modern sale, the cover lot was uh, a Mondrian painting. And um, it also attracted a, just a huge amount of bidding. Sold for a record, it was a, I think it was like almost double the um, the estimate. And uh, Amy Capalazzo, the former Christie's post-war head of, uh, uh, was bidding in the room, and she got the piece. And apparently, it was sold by uh, Daniel Malang, one of the great old-time European Paris-based modern picture dealers, who apparently had the thing since uh, 2009 and apparently couldn't sell it at 20 to $25 million and put it up at auction and got, you know, this extraordinary um, result, which... That is fascinating yeah. because it really, when you saw that in their preview in the room after seeing, you know, the looking forward to the past works and then, mm -hmm. you know, being led through and turning the corner and seeing this work after seeing those, you, you, your immediate thought was 15 to 25, are they nuts? That seems too low. And of course, uh, you know, that's the, uh, enough other people had that impression because it sold for, for 50, which I guess, uh, again, sort of validates this idea that there are things you can't sell on their own that may sell uh, in context or a different sort of context far better. And what was fascinating about that lot, of course, that it uh, was naked as well, wasn't it? Mm, mm -hmm. No guarantee, yeah. nothing. Yeah, um, yeah. And actually, we, even when it was first announced, a lot of people said that that estimate's very, very low. So that worked very, very well indeed. It's just so funny if he couldn't sell it for the estimate estimated price privately, which which again shows what a lot of people have been remarking is that it's very hard to get people to buy something privately these days mm -hmm. until they see. Uh, a price validated. Yes. They they need to see someone else, and and that may get us back to the guarantees. They need to see someone else say yes. I'm definitely going to buy, buy it before they're willing to to jump in the game. I think that's particularly the case with uh, Asian buyers, particularly the Chinese. They they well they love gambling, and they also don't want to be cheated. And uh, certainly in the in the realm of you know, Chinese ceramics and so on. It, they far prefer bidding at auction than uh, than from dealers, and obviously that that that, that principle extends to um, the modern and contemporary art market as well. Well, with that, Scott, I think I'm going to give you the final word. That's the perfect place to end. 
Thank you for uh, taking the time, Scott. Thank you. Judd, uh, always a pleasure. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 